Welcome to The Collective Tap, conversations about water. I'm your host, Taylor Bennett. We've called the second season of The Collective Tap, Well to Table, and focused on the role water plays in the production of food and beverages in Indiana. Our field hosts, Taz and Devin, have talked with members of the agricultural community and commercial producers. We close this season talking with the people behind some of our local beer and spirits. In this episode, we talk with Bob Yates with Hotel Tango Distillery and Dave Colt of Sun King Brewery. We discuss the role water plays in crafting the frosty beverages that are the life of the party here in central Indiana. What does it take to produce the beer, liquor, and cider in our mugs? What do the producers worry about, and how do they control their usage? First, let's meet Taz and Devin. Hi, I'm Taz Walters, one of the Collective Tap's non-water expert hosts. Just like you, I have lots of questions about our water. And I'm Devin Dabney. I'm also new to the world of water, but I'm here to help ask the questions you might want answered. Our first conversation is with Bob Yates, the head distiller with Hotel Tango Distillery. Bob shares how they make their 10 different spirits, source water concerns, and how the industry approaches sustainability. My name is Bob Yates. I'm the head distiller here at Hotel Tango Distillery. What things do you distill? So here at Hotel Tango, we do uh, we have 10 different spirits. So we have, we have three clears, three browns, and four liqueurs, which in liqueurs contain sugar. We break them up the three, so clears as in uh, would be unaged spirits. So uh, it comes off the still after the distillation process and uh, is blended with water to make sure the alcohol by volume is correct. And then from there into the bottle, uh, brown spirits would be ones that have aged in a barrel for whatever, six months to six years. And that's where it's picking up its color. Everything goes into the barrel clear comes out of the barrel dark. But the process more or less is the same. Comes the distillation process into a collection vessel, blended with water, and then into a barrel. It's just that alcohol by volume that changes. And then the liqueurs are, uh, there's a base which is a spirit, whether it be vodka or bourbon, or maybe a blend of both. And then either fruit added or some sort of flavoring added, and then sugar. So can you tell us how water factors into those processes? If we can start with the production phase, the brewing process and the dis distillation process for the most part start off the same. And the majority of that process outside of the grain is water. And by volume, you have more water than grain. Um, the water that goes into that, is referred to as mash, the mixing of water and grain to convert starch to sugar, Again, the same in beer and distillation. Um, the water is impacting the efficiency of that conversion. In beer, you'll have people who will take municipal water, strip it completely out through reverse osmosis, and then add their own ions back in, salts back in to build their own water, and then add that to their grains. And that's uh, impacting the electrical conductivity of the mash and the uh, pH of the mash, which allow enzymes to convert starch to sugar. You talked about how brewers will sometimes uh, basically re-engineer their own water. Like they'll do reverse osmosis and they'll add their own ions into it uh, because they want a specific makeup, chemically speaking, of the water. I'm curious if uh, you at, and Hotel Tango have a specific kind of water quality or traits that you want it to have? When it comes to the rebuilding of water, whether it be completely stripping it down to nothing or 
adding to or uh, whatever your municipal um, supply is, is going to largely be dependent upon what your end result is, what, what you're selling. Mm -hmm. So beer makers are much more interested in the flavor of that water that goes into the mash because the mash is fermented and ends up being the beer that they sell. Mm -hmm. For us, that mash becomes beer, but then gets stripped down and separated from the alcohol and the water. There is flavor components that are transferred through that, but much less than what is, uh, what, what is prevalent in beer. Our like water flavor determining factor is after distillation. So when I, when I talked about proofing down uh, what is actually gonna go into the bottle, that's where you're getting the majority of your uh, discernible difference of, of water chemistry. What water do you use? Where does it come from? So when we make our mashes, there is a small amount of filtration, but for all intents and purposes, we're using municipal water. The pH that we get coming out of, of the tap, as it were, is very close to neutral. There is a higher dissolved solids, you know, it's coming from the treatment plant. Um, depending on what time of year you are getting that water, it will have a different amount of chemical concentration of total dissolved solids. So we filter it a small amount for the mash, but our proofing water is all reverse osmosis. Proofing is the cutting raw alcohol with water to bring it down to its bottle proof. So if you take liquor out of a barrel and it's 127 proof and you want it to be 90, you gotta blend it with water, right? Um, so right now we're blending it with just reverse osmosis water, which is, which is great, right? Because you have no ill effects. As long as my softener is good and my filter is good, which are preventative maintenance every, every 30 days, then I'm solid and I know that the water that goes into my bottles are going to be perfect and clean and not gonna have any kind of separation, stratification, any kind of bad interaction. What we are working towards is building our own proofing water and that will be spirit specific because each spirit wants to land on your palate differently. Mm. And because water is such a huge determining factor of the flavors, how it interacts with that liquor, then that ion concentration or the salt concentration of that water is gonna be super impactful to each spirit. How much water do you use in a year, say? We use a lot of water, okay. we really do. So our distillery is 20 barrels, it's uh, 660 gallons, 2,500 liters. And then the majority of that is, is water, right? Is liquid. And not only that, but we are using that reverse osmosis system, which is very efficient. It's, I think it's uh, one collected and three quarters down the drain, which is a relatively efficient reverse osmosis system. But we, we, we are, we're producing a lot and we are proofing down a lot. So we go through a lot of water. I don't know the number off the top of my head, but I know that we are processing a lot of water. It's a pretty big water bill. It's a very large water bill. Our reverse osmosis handles 500 gallons every 24 hours. You know, I'm curious how much you talk about water and water supply with other distillers or brewers, because water is the one thing that you all have in common. Coming from beer and now into spirits, I have found that distillers play things a little closer to the chest. Whereas brewers are much more open with, hey man, you should try this, or hey, I did this and that, and this worked for me. Um, whereas distillers are a little bit more reserved in my experience. And maybe it's just because of that investment of time that goes into it. A brewery turns over beer in 30 days, whereas a distillery is not turning over liquor for 365 or 
two years, five years. So yeah, uh, as far as the access of information or trade of information, I don't, I haven't seen that a lot in our industry. We're trying to bridge that gap, being that myself and a lot of my team come from the brewing industry. So we're trying to be a little more collaborative in that. I know a little bit more about what traditional distilleries do as far as uh, Kentucky and traditional bourbon making. They're much more focused on the natural makeup of whatever their local water source is. We're, we're a little bit more in an urban area. We got a little too much other stuff going on. I'm curious if there's any regulations around the water that you're allowed to use. Like you're talking about how in Kentucky they're focused on like the natural flavor of the waters. I mean, does it, is it basically just it has to be up to drinkable standards? So I'm, I'm going to speculate a little bit about how other distilleries <laughs> do their water, right? It is hard for me to believe that plants as large as blank in Kentucky are able to siphon enough clean water out of a natural supply to do all their processes. It's just, an, it's, a, it's a large amount of water. So my assumption is that they are treating municipal water based on ecological data they have from their local water source. So adding things to make it match what's in their area. Correct, which is exactly what brewers do. So if a brewer is going to make a, che a Czech Pilsner, he's going to go onto the internet and say, what is the water table of Pils in Czech Republic? And he's going to go in there and say, oh, it's this, that, and the other. And he'll go into his RO water, that is a zero TDS or five TDS, and he'll add Epsom and calcium carbonate or gypsum or whatever that might be to get himself to the right hardness that matches Pilsen or Burton-on-Trent, which is a popular English water table, and they'll replicate that, add that to their mash. And we've actually done that before with a couple clients. I had a single barrel client who wanted to pull uh, water out of his local creek from Kentucky, I wanna say, it was either Kentucky or Tennessee. He wanted to pull water from this creek, and we said, okay, we'll make this work. First, you have to get some eco-testing done. Yeah. So he got a couple eco-testings done, and it came back with uh, pretty high levels of E. coli. Of course. Right. Oh, we've been learning all about E. coli. <laughs> we can't use this. Right. So I gave him some options. I said, if you want to just truck up some water, I'll filter it for you. Not a great idea. Uh, so my alternative was just what I said previous. I've got a bunch of RO water. I've got your eco testing. I'm going to pull your calcium, your XYZ that I need to recreate, and I'll get you to the right hardness or softness or whatever that might be. I don't remember what the numbers were. Um, but basically, we're gonna recreate as best as we can without all the heavy metals, that water that you brought to us, and we'll leave the E. coli. That's so interesting. I don't, I would never have thought about adding things into the water. When we have been talking about water, we've mostly been talking about taking things out sure. of it, not putting things back into it. So that's, that's really fascinating. Right, and, and also it's kind of explaining to me a little bit why when different breweries make their Hefeweizen or their Pilsner or whatever, that it's kind of the same. I'm sorry, when it comes to breweries and stuff like that, just on that point, mm -hmm. the next time you find yourself drinking a dark beer mm -hmm. from the tap, from your local brewery, maybe not out of a can or a, mm -hmm. a bottle, dark beers, for me personally, I always have a chalkiness to them because of the amendment of calcium carbonate mm. in it. And that's like softening the bitterness of the darker roasted malts. Yeah. And for me, it just jumps out on my palate. I taste chalk. Yeah. Unless it's a very, very lightly amended dark beer. We heard about the very first batch of whiskey here being adversely affected, we'll say, by the water. Can you explain? There's a story 
that goes around from the owner about early days of a batch going bad. I actually wasn't here for that, but I did call him today in preparation just to make sure that I had my story <laughs> straight. Um, so back then, it was just this still behind us. It's a 150-gallon still, very small. Um, it was a, a totally different operation back then. And uh, I think it was, they were still in kind of an exploratory phase of what their processes were going to be. And from what it sounds like, the story is they caught the water treatment right when the seasons changed or right when a treatment plan changed. Uh, and it seems like the biggest folly was that they were using municipal water for proofing. Mm -hmm. So municipal water in, in, the, in the mash is tolerable, but once you use municipal water in proofing, you're going to run into some problems, especially with bourbon. Um, bourbon has to be 51% corn. And so doing, you have a lot of oil that comes through in the distillation process being alcohol soluble. So when you add a bunch of solids or anything that is hydrophobic into that, uh, into that solution, it's going to jump out and the oils are going to accentuate that. So I think that that's what happened is they had this batch that turned, they added water to it and it went immediately cloudy because all the stuff in the water wanted to separate. You had water and oil and a bunch of other solids and it just kind of separated and stratified. Again, that was, that was a long time ago. That is, and it never got into a bottle, you know, right. it, it didn't ever meet and never made it that far. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, processes have changed since then. So you also have a farm. We do, yeah. Are there any water-related practices in place there, like cover crops or water conservation? Uh, so our farm, the Hotel Tango farm, is uh, right on 65. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you're driving on 65, you'll be able to see the, the big barn uh, that says Hotel Tango, big green barn. For the past three, four years, it has been farmed by a company called Indie Urban Acres. Mm -hmm. um, they sell a lot of flowers to Kroger and Marsh and other grocery stores. Uh, they also do a lot of um, food bank stuff, farmer's market stuff. They are really interactive in like getting the youth in sustainable agriculture and stuff like that. This year is the first year they're not farming. So we are planting cover crops. Um, that property is on its own well. Um, I want to say we have two wells dug out there. We had another one dug recently. So it is, and it's also sitting on a pretty large aquifer. So that, that facility in and of itself takes care of itself, but there's no production that happens out there. It's just, it is just the, just the farm. And we've got some trees we've used, uh, like the tasting room we'll use cucumbers and garnishes, mints, and things like that that they grow out there. Yeah. And on that note, I'm curious, and it's okay if the answer is no, I'm curious if there's any component of operating a distillery or a brewery in which being sustainable is good for business? Because I mean, obviously some things are more expensive to do the right way, but is there anything, yeah, this is good for the environment and it's actually cheaper? I mean, there definitely are. Uh, there's definitely ways where being sustainable in a distillery is profitable. I think it's an upfront cost, you know, I, I, it just, as, just as most things are, is that, um, Sure, you're going to make your money back, but the return on investment is a little bit long. Uh, so if you're in it for the long haul or you have a bunch of upfront capital, then um, you'll see that turn around real quick. Um, unfortunately, for, in my opinion, for small distilleries, for artisan distilleries, being that it's a newer thing uh, in the scheme of things, I think that there's not much incentive, incentivizing for people to be sustainable. 
I think it's more time equals money. Um, so from a, a huge sustainability outlook, being that we are a distillery that admittedly has waste practices, has non-sustainable waste practices that we are moving in the direction of writing that. And it is on the forefront of our mind of how do we be more socially conscious in what we use and what we're willing to throw away or destroy. Next, we speak with Dave Colt, a co-founder of Sun King Brewing, about their effort to improve their systems and why water is like gold. Hi, my name is Dave Colt. I'm uh, the co-founder and co-CEO of Sun King Brewing Company. I'm also uh, in charge of the liquid portion of our business. Which is a pretty big portion, I would presume, since beer is mostly liquid. <laughs> I mean, typically beer is 90% water, so, you know, there's a lot in there. Spirits also play a role in that as well, with some water in the mix. So you're saying water is a big part of beer. Can you talk about how water is used in the brewing process? Yeah, water is used in the brewing process. I mean, it's one of the four main ingredients. In fact, it's the most plentiful of all the ingredients. So how water, you know, how water affects the, the beer. If you have water that is subpar as far as flavor contribution or anything like that, then it's going to affect the finishing product on the backside. But we also use water in the cleaning process of the beer, as, you know, of the tanks and lines and all that kind of good stuff. Um, there's an old brewer saying, cleanliness is next to godliness. And we've got to, you know, make sure that everything is super clean and very sanitary when we're transferring beer around. We talked earlier today with a distillery. They told us that one of the differences between, you know, distilleries and breweries is that water doesn't affect the taste as much for a distillery as it does for a brewery. Can you explain? No, water is important for the distilling process. And especially if we're talking, you know, like sour mashing and that sort of thing, um, the high alkalinity of the water that we find ourselves in central to south Indiana and Kentucky, you know, all those limestone don't, all the limestone that is in the, you know, in the bedrock around here, that contributes to a positive pH outcomes. So if we have sour mashing, we got a lower pH and we have limestone water with a higher alkalinity, then we hit a really nice pH point for the yeast. So, you know, that's, that's important for distilling, especially for doing uh, spirits. But we're not as concerned about, you know, intense minerality. So we have some pretty hard water here on any given day, up to 400 grams of hardness. So that's, that's pretty, pretty good. So do you say to yourself, well, why does that matter? Back to that pH question again. So if we're making beers that are, say, like a, a, German, a German lager, German Pilsner, well, we've got very, very, very light grain in the mix. And it isn't bringing as, as uh, the opposite pH punch to line up with the alkalinity of the water supply that we're bringing into it. So that throws the pH off for the yeast and that creates some flavors that might not be desirable. So our water supply is actually perfect for making porters and stouts because we have the alkalinity. And when you have highly kilned or uh, toasted malts, you create acidity in there, and then we get back to that wonderful pH. So for us to be able to create beers, it's probably another question coming up, is the manipulation of the water and how do we you know, change out um, some of the hardness to create a bunch of varieties of different styles. 
where exactly does the water that you use come from? Are you using like the municipal supply or are you drawing it from somewhere else? Uh, we typically use water from our municipal supply source. Um, it's the easiest and you know, most flexible as far as that's concerned. I wish that we were on some sort of giant, beautiful aquifer that we could, <laughs> could we, you know, that we could use to, um, to make some awesome beer, but we would also be limited by that water supply because of its, you know, alkalinity or, or lack thereof. Uh, in the production of different beers. So if we were, and I, let me back up, I apologize. Um, some of the best or greatest well-known beer styles on the planet are basically because of the aquifers that the brewery set upon. So if you think about Bass, Burton-on-Trent, it has a very certain alkalinity to that water supply, which helps to create a classic British pale ale. If we look at, you know, the Germans, again, a different kind of water there. And so it you know, the terroir of the water plays a lot into what the final product or classic, quintessential classic styles become. You mentioned earlier how the water we have here is ideal for stouts, but you have sunlight cream ale. <laughs> so I'm just curious how hard it is, like what has to be done to make something like that that's different? Because of the alkalinity or the hardness of the water that we have, it would tend to lend us to make porters and stouts on the regular, but our flagship beer happens to be sunlight cream ale. So how do we make that? Well, we you know have to kind of break the water down and we use, uh, in our for our purposes, we'll use a reverse osmosis system to get to a very clean neutral base. And then we'll take, um, a water source coming in and kind of blend, a custom blend. So we'll reduce the amount of alkalinity by blending in some RO water with regular municipality water. That has ran through a charcoal filter to remove chlorine and chloramines. Now those things, you know, they're present in most municipality water supplies um, and they're usually volatile. They'll flash off, you know, when you get stuff up to a boil, but why put it in there? And just for clarity's sake, when you say flash off, you mean that it, it would just separate in some way or? Flashing off means to sort of vaporize out of the water. And um, we've talked a lot about like the water going in. Can we talk a little bit about the water that comes out? What water is left over after you finish the brewing process? Is there any wastewater or discharge water? We do have water that is not part of the brewing process insofar as it becomes beer at the end. And so that's usually the water that we use for uh, cleaning purposes. You know, we do use some chemicals in the mix. Uh, when we're fermenting, we've added hops to the beer. Hops have kind of an oily content to them. Uh, they're very sticky and all of that. And the yeast really likes to stick to the surface. And so we have to use a little bit of some heavy duty stuff uh, like sodium hydroxide or some other things to really neutralize that and get the vessel, fermentation vessel, ready for another round of fermentation. How much water does Sun King use on a yearly basis or daily or monthly or whatever? On average, a brewery um, of our size uses about six gallons of water per one gallon of, to make one gallon of beer. Okay. And we try really hard to, you know, kind of narrow that gap. When you're a much larger uh, facility and you have more economies of scale at play, then you can, you know, kind of close that gap some. But if we use that 
number and apologize for busting out a calculator. <laughs> um, let's see, last year we did 33,000 barrels of beer. So that's one million gallons of water of beer, yeah. water. So multiply that by six. Give it a quick six. So you got about yeah. six million gallons of water. When I first started brewing, we would do this thing. Part of the process of brewing is this, um, this thing called sparging. And so we're gonna create, we're gonna take water, and we're gonna take grain, and we're gonna get it to a nice, lovely 150 degrees Fahrenheit or so. Um, we're gonna encourage enzymes to start breaking down the starches in the grain into sugar. Sugar is what the yeast is going to eat to create alcohol. Uh, but for us to be efficient, we wanna take more water and rinse as much of the sugar out of the grain as we possibly can. So when I first started my brewing career, you would just sparge until you got the volume that you wanted in the kettle, and then you'd have a bunch of water left over. And so we started to calculate that out and say, well, that's really kind of, that's kind of wasteful. We're draining it anyway. So why don't we, we, you know, math is our friend and we can calculate out how much water exactly we're gonna need. We know that, you know, roughly 15 to 20% of the water that we put with the grain is going to get absorbed by the grain. And we can't really unlock that unless we put it through some sort of vice and squeeze it out. Um, there are more efficient methods and that takes a filter mash press and a whole bunch of other stuff I don't think that we have time for here, but just simply calculating out how much water we need to do that sparge. Uh, the water then that's locked into the grain is only the water that is locked in there a little bit you know, more, but not much. Uh, then that goes to our various farmers who then you know, feed it to cows. So the water then is used up completely to the best of our ability for what we're able to do. Is water availability something that you think about? Do you have a plan in place if you can't get water? Yeah, I mean, a strategic thought about what water means to us in the future and as it becomes um, more of a crisis, you know, I've gone to a couple of different uh, talks about water being the new gold here mm -hmm. before too long, uh, especially with the, you know, increasing population of the planet with climate, you know, pressures and all those kinds of things. It is something to consider. It is difficult for us to really think about at this size to, you know, how can we ensure a clean water supply other than to do the best that we can with the water that we have. So, you know, if we think about it, it is real already. A lot of breweries, larger craft breweries who started off in California, opened up places in North Carolina where there's more plentiful water. So it's already happening out west. Uh, so it, it's here so far, you know, knock on wood or whatever deity or not that you believe in or, or not, then, you know, so far we haven't had a huge issue in Indiana as far as the availability of water. My, my background's in climbing, and I was at a convention last week and I listened to some gym owners talk about how, you know, during the pandemic, they were struggling and they wanted to open. 
And they all got together to convince, like, basically the local government that climbing gyms were able to operate safely. I don't know how it would work, but I'm so curious to see if there's a future where breweries and distilleries are able to, like, bond and work together around protecting water. Do you see a, a future or a world where different breweries and distilleries can work together to protect water? As a small producer, um, and no different than Hotel Tango or anybody else who's using water to make a product. We do have, you know, trade organizations that are, that we belong to that are on that forefront that are able to have a conversation, be in the room on our behalf, on all of our organization's behalf. I know that the Brewers Association is what I'm referring to, but Discus is usually the Distilled Spirits Alcohol Council. Um, and they do an amazing job, and they actually are friendly organizations, so they do kind of wrap back and forth a little bit. I think that up until recently, taxation has been a huge issue for small businesses like myself, and they've really put a concerted effort in giving us some relief on that front. Then flip into pandemic mode and how do we make sure our you know, members survive? You know, it's real, and the conversations have started to happen. There's just, you know, you got a hot stove and what, what pot's about to boil over is the thing that gets the attention. In that same vein, you know, we've heard about the Brewers for Clean Water Pledge um, that Sun King is a part of. Yes. Um, so if you can talk a little bit about that, what it is and why um, Sun King decided to join. Uh, Sun King is part of the Brewers for Clean Water Act, which is part of the Natural Resources Defense Council. It's another organization that is out there, you know, protecting uh, protecting water for us all. So as a consumer of water um, that then passes water along that has some yummy flavors and alcohol in it, to consumers we're very conscious about you know how we can be better stewards of what we're given. Water is always needed for beer. I guess like if I think about it in the simplest way possible, you start the process with water, you end the process with water. Is there not a reason that that water that you have at the very end can't just be brought back to the front and treated and used to brew beer again? It's a very interesting thought on what, how do we recycle the water at a local level? And I think it goes, that goes back to what I said that we don't have scaled down you know, resources to be able to handle that. So if you're a very, very big brewery, let's say you're, you know, Anheuser-Busch or Coors or something like that, um, well, heck, even Sierra Nevada uh, is going to have its own wastewater treatment plant on site. I see what you're saying. So they're going to be able to reuse some affluent as gray water for, you know, flushing of toilets and other things we aren't as sophisticated because we still, as a business, we still have to be concerned with, you know, ROI, return on investment. And so investing in technologies, we, we try to be as clean and green as we possibly can afford to be. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, we have bills to pay and people that want to um, take money home to eat and live. Yeah. Which is totally fair. It's not all on the businesses, right? Like businesses are designed to make money. And so they're going to take like water, the path of least resistance. <laughs> and so it's not just a question of, well, why isn't the business being sustainable? It's like, why can't the business be sustainable? Like what's making it more expensive? What's making it harder 
to be sustainable? And like, what can we do at like a government level to make it more sensible for a business to be sustainable? We've emphasized it a lot, but I just really want to like say that again. It's not all on the individuals to do this. This has to be a collective effort. Sustainability is an interesting proposition. It is, um, it's something that everybody should aspire to and, and invest, you know, their dollars into it as much as they possibly can, but not to the point where it encumbers the business to the point where it goes out of business. And that's, that's kind of, it's kind of bad. So, uh, the point is taken that, you know, it is everybody's responsibility to, to talk about that. Is there some public private funding that could help with, you know, larger, you know, folks, people who make much larger equipment for the big guys and help them scale down so that it, it becomes profitable for them as well and thus helping everybody. So my first time visiting Bellsbury, just taking a lovely tour um, with the head brewer guy in charge of brewing operations. And we we're looking at this beautiful BrowCon fully automated system. It's just putting out tons and tons of beer. And then I happened to notice in the Steamstack column that there was a sort of radiator mechanism in the middle of it. And I asked John Mallet, I said, bud, what's that? And he goes, it's a energy system recoups that, you know, so all of the steam is heating water that then is transferring back through the brewing system and all that kind of good stuff. And I was like, damn. <laughs> right on and he goes it's awesome and we can afford it so we did it but for you and your size it would be 20 plus years before you would even get to a break-even situation on that investment so well I have a very important question for you what is your favorite beer my favorite <laughs> beer is the one that I'm holding ah <laughs> That's a good. That's a good answer. I like that. The one that I can currently drink. That one that I have access to immediately is my favorite beer. Um, also, free beer is delicious as well. So if that happens to coincide together, and then we are we are good. Mostly, I'm a hophead, so I kind of tend in that direction. Water is vital for bringing food and beverages to our tables, which means it is also an essential part of Indiana's economy and quality of life. We hope you've enjoyed learning more about this critical aspect of water in our daily lives. We invite you to join us soon for season three of The Collective Tap, The Hidden Life of Water. We will examine some of the ways water use often goes unnoticed. The Collective Tap is a project of the White River Alliance, a 501c3 organization located in Indianapolis, Indiana. We are an alliance of diverse interests and organizations that work together to steward the river and its watershed. It is made possible with generous funding from the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust. If you want to learn more, visit us at thecollectivetap.com or at thewhiteriveralliance.org, produced in partnership with Observe.